0: The Interchange is brought to you by the Yale Program on Financing and Deploying Clean Energy. Are you looking for a way to advance your career and advance your knowledge? Well, through this online program, Yale University is training working professionals in clean energy policy, finance, and technology to accelerate the deployment of clean energy worldwide. To connect with Yale expertise, grow your professional network, and deepen your impact— visit yalecleanenergy.info slash interchange. And if you can't remember that, just go to the link in the show notes and make sure you apply before March 14th, 2021. Green Tech Media Podcast.
1: This is The Interchange from Green Tech Media in Ojai, California, this week anyway. I'm Shale Khan, a partner at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. So here are some things I'm confident will happen over the next decade. First, wind and solar will continue to become cheaper and cheaper. Despite the fact that they are already much cheaper than they were historically, despite the fact that they've already become much cheaper than anyone anticipated a decade or two decades ago, they will continue their inexorable march down the cost curve. Second, as a result of that, we will continue to build more and more of both of them, both in the United States and globally. They've become this rare win-win-win where they're politically popular, they're popular with politicians and regulators alike, they're popular with customers, and in fact customers are constantly demanding more of them in their energy supply, and they just happen to be now, in most locations, the lowest cost resource. And that means that it's good for utilities and other decision makers who want to build more infrastructure, but need it to be cost effective. And so we're just going to keep building more wind and solar. Like, there's no question in my mind. So that's one and two. Now, three, the direct result of those first two is that as we continue to build more wind and solar, more and more regions will start to look kind of like California does now on a sunny spring day or the Midwest on a windy evening, West Texas on a windy evening, Which is to say, we will see more and more periods where power prices drop to zero in wholesale markets or below. We will see more and more curtailment when we shoot electricity into the ground because we have nothing to do with it. And more and more of the dreaded, quote unquote, overproduction. Not all the time, mind you, but at some times in some places and increasingly, which I think is the key point. Now, I think the core question, and in fact, You know, a hotly debated topic within certain nerdy circles in the electricity world is whether this is a feature or a bug. The fact that we have overproduction of renewables and we'll probably have more and more of it can be viewed as a huge challenge because it makes the economics of a new renewable project worse, makes the economics of a current renewable project worse. And, you know, you can play that out to its logical conclusion and hit a point where you saturate the market with renewables and stop building anymore and we have trouble decarbonizing the grid. On the other hand, it can be viewed as a feature if you look at it from the perspective of the fact that we will have more and more periods of time with extremely cheap and perhaps zero-cost electricity at bulk scale. Now, what you got to figure out is what are you going to do with all of that cheap, abundant renewables, especially given that it's only available to you at certain times and in certain locations? So that is the core question. So that's what we're talking about today. And I was fortunate to have with me to chat about this uh, Melissa Lott, who has been on the show before. She's a senior research scholar at the Columbia Center on Global Energy Policy. Um, She's a friend of the pod. She was on, I think, about a year ago, um, but it was definitely during COVID because both at the last time that we talked and this time she was recording from an Airstream trailer somewhere in America. Uh, But more recently in December, she wrote a good piece along with her colleague Julio Friedman, who's also a recent guest on this show, uh, about what to do with renewables oversupply when we have it, using some really interesting examples from both places that I know a lot about, like California, and places that I don't, like New Zealand. So, with no further ado, my conversation with Melissa Lott. Hey, Melissa.
2: Hey, Shale. How are you?
1: I'm good. How are you?
2: I am good. Um, We keep saying in the office, I'm good COVID adjusted. I was just thinking back on the past year since I think we hung out on here uh, last and it's been a heck of a year.
1: It has been something. There's no question about that. Uh, Let's start by um, defining what we're talking about here. So I think we'll probably end up accidentally using a number of terms interchangeably here over generation, over supply, over production, um, all related to, you know, there being an overabundance of clean energy at a given time. Can you just explain a little bit more what that actually means? Like what what defines overproduction as opposed to just lots of production?
2: Yeah, so... Okay, let's back up for one second. If we look at the power sector, and everyone on the show knows, power sector, backbone of decarbonization. We want to have a lot more power. We want it to be zero carbon. We want that to happen as quickly as possible to support the transition. Within that, we want three broad buckets of technologies to keep the cost down and reliability high. So short and long-term energy storage, firm dispatchable power, and a lot of variable renewables, right? And as we build out those variable renewables, like wind and solar, we... I would say we broadly expect to see, and we're already seeing, temporary periods where we're producing more electricity than we're using in that moment. So we've got a lot of just stranded homeless electricity that has nowhere to go. So what's really interesting and why we're talking about it today is that we're not just seeing periods where like wind and solar are producing more electricity than we need in that instance. We're actually seeing signs that some countries and some regions in the world are exploring how to actively overbuild these types of technologies to create opportunities as we move to decarbonized economies.
1: Right. This is the key point is that the the term that we use, overgeneration, over supply, overproduction, implies a negative. It has a negative connotation to it. And indeed it can be a problem. We should talk about what who that becomes a problem for at some point. But it also is it's equally an opportunity and that's the point that you're making here that like some governments and planners decision makers companies are viewing it explicitly as such this is we have an opportunity to create overproduction in order to do something with it and so i want to be clear here that like it is both is both sides of this coin it's a problem when it stands on its own it's a solution to a bunch of other problems when you know, you do something special with it.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I think I'm think i quoting Josh Rhodes, who if you're on Energy Twitter, you follow him probably, but it's all, how did he say it? It's a feature, not a fault, or it, it can be a feature, not a fault.
1: Feature, not a bug. There you go. Probably. Feature, not a
2: bug. That hits it.
1: So let's talk about some specific examples and like practically, you know, where are we seeing this happen today and what does it look like? So uh, we want to talk through at least a couple of examples. First one's probably near to home for many of our listeners, which is California. So... What are we seeing currently in terms of overgeneration of renewables in California?
2: Yeah, so California, for those who aren't there or maybe aren't as familiar with it, you've got a lot of variable renewables, wind, solar, and you've got significant supply and demand mismatches, which have led to to curtailment. So in 2020, I think California, last time I looked at the numbers, they definitely curtailed over a terawatt hour of zero carbon electricity. And even before COVID-19 hit, and all of our electricity demand pattern shifted, curtailment of electricity from wind and solar in California was higher than in previous years. And I feel like it was CalISO that put out numbers saying that in January alone, they'd curtailed something like 140 gigawatt hours of wind and solar. So like a factor of 10 increase over previous years. So this is the trend we've been seeing in California.
1: Right. So California is probably the example that I would guess most folks are already familiar with. And it's, it's mostly solar in California, right, more than it is wind. And it's seasonal, right? We see it, especially in the spring, because that's also when there tends to be an abundance of hydro generation, and you still get a lot of sun, but you don't have as much uh, air conditioning load yet. So like all these things come together, and you just get a ton of curtailment. To be clear, curtailment is just when we end up having to shoot power into the ground, basically. It's just wasted production. Um, Let's talk about maybe a, a further afield example. In the paper that you wrote recently on this topic you talked about New Zealand which has a unique case what's the what's the New Zealand story
2: yeah so I can remember um when the idea that became this paper came out I was messaging with Julio Friedman who's my co-author on it and I said Julio did you see about this aluminum smelter and he immediately knew what I meant and he knew it was in New Zealand so I figured we were destined to be co-authors I I know Julio Um,
1: well enough to not be surprised by that (laughs)
2: I know, me too. I was just smiled. I was like, of course, of course he knows exactly what I was speaking of. But um, as background for those of who- you you who, I studied in New Zealand, so for those of you who didn't, who haven't spent a lot of time in that country, um, New Zealand's electricity mix is already majority renewables, and it's been that way for a while, and most of that, something like 70% is actually hydro. And the announcement that happened last summer was that an aluminum smelter on the South Island uh, was going to be shutting down, and to give context as to how big a deal that is, that aluminum smelter is responsible for something like 12% of the electricity demand on the country over the period of a year. Also, that electricity is supplied with hydro hydro that is very local and was essentially is sitting there to supply this smelter so what this means is that suddenly 12 percent of its historic electricity demand in the country that was supplied by hydro is now available firm dispatchable zero carbon power it's like every decarbonization modelers dream all of a sudden happened they had this power and so the question is what do you do with it now
1: Right. So I want to talk about the different options for what do you do with all this excess cheap renewables? because I think this is the thing that this is the thing we're going to be figuring out globally for decades to come. But first, I want to talk about when when you end up with one of these situations where we do have times of the day, times of the year in certain locations where there is more electricity being produced than there is demand for that electricity, um, who gets hurt? Like who is the, who's the loser in that situation? Who feels the pain?
2: Yeah, so when you have, you know, a a resource, so renewable power generation that you've invested in, um, and you've paid for it, that investor earns money when it generates electricity, right? So it could be a tax credit, like in the United States, a production tax credit they're missing out on, or it could just be that price per kilowatt hour they're not getting paid when they're not generating and sending stuff into the grid. So like negative power prices, they may seem fun or even good you know, for those of us who are paying the end bill in our home, but for that person who invested in that resource, that's not a happy situation. So
1: And it's a disincentive for future investment. Right. So the the other risk here is not just that like some independent power producer is gonna lose money on the asset that they invested in already, boo hoo, I guess, from a societal perspective. What it means is that so for example, if you're trying to build Uh, More solar in California, if you're trying to build more wind in West Texas or in the Midwest, you have to account for these periods of zero to negative pricing or potentially curtailment. In your economic model, it makes it harder to make the numbers pencil, basically. And so what we don't want is this problem to result in a slowdown in growth of new renewables just when they were becoming cheap enough that otherwise you could have them scale.
2: Yep, absolutely. And on top of that, as we realize that we need renewables to grow as quickly as possible to hit these decarbonization targets we have, uh, we need to be building more faster. We certainly don't want to be slowing down.
1: Okay, so let's talk about what do you do about it then. So at the high level, I feel like there are, this is how I've been thinking about it, there's sort of three high-level solutions. The first one is shift demand patterns, right? like, you know, change demand patterns to better align with when the supply arrives. Um, not with any new demand necessarily, but just by saying, like, let me use smart thermostats, right? Let me, um, it is what the function batteries play. And, you know, in this context as well, shift the, shift the load or at least soak it up and then reuse it. Um, electrify vehicles and, uh, you know, do smart charging so that you're charging at the right times of day. So the first the first category in my mind is uh, shift demand. The second category is find a new source of demand. So use that excess electricity, which is incredibly cheap, to do something, produce something else. And then the third is build out the network such that you don't need to do either of those two other things. In other words, transport the power from one place to another place via more transmission. Do I have those categories right? Am I missing anything?
2: You know, I just, I would say it slightly differently, but it's it's the same thing. I mean, oversupply of electricity is arguably a market failure, right? And it's one that we can manage with technology. So that's two of those buckets, build out new transmission lines, or we can use technologies to facilitate increasing levels of demand response. So matching supply and demand. Um, But the third one is to say, okay, well, if in the longer term, we need to decarbonize a whole economy, we need a lot more electricity, and we need it as quickly as possible, well, there's an opportunity for actually intentional overbuilding to produce other products and to use that electricity in that way. So it's the three buckets. It's what you said. I just had to kind of put it in my brain in a slightly different way.
1: So let's talk about the, um, I think the second one is perhaps the most like, there's the most new stuff going on there. The second one being find new uses for that power right? Because I think in, there's, there's a lot of things um, kind of colliding here. There's a bunch of other decarbonization solutions that will can use electricity. And simultaneously, there's been like the increasing recognition that there's going to be oversupply. Um, the wholesale power prices have been going down. It's all this stuff is coming together for there to be a bunch of new solutions for like new sources of electricity demand. So take your pick, like what, What do you think is the kind of most interesting category for new load sinks for electricity?
2: Yeah, so I mean... (sighs) Oh, it's bad because I think they're all interesting. So now I gotta pick which one I want to talk about right now. So um we've talked about like California, so North America, the US, we've talked about New Zealand. I'm gonna move into Europe for a second, actually, because I think there's some really cool examples there. Um, so and and across a couple of interesting applications. So, you know, one of them is one that we talk about a lot: electrification is of light duty transport, you know, and you see in countries like France, Germany, the list goes on, increasing work to get as many electric vehicles on the road and retire as many fossil internal combustion engine vehicles as possible so you see that so electrifying the light duty fleet that's your new load source to actually use this stuff for
1: right and so but let's just harp on that for one second just to go a bit in, into more detail because the challenge is right it you know uh it's one thing to add new electricity load via light duty vehicles or medium duty vehicles it's another thing to have those vehicles be a load sink for this oversupply problem right yep. so it it necessitates charging those vehicles at certain times of day perhaps even at certain times of year which is a lot more challenging in order to be a true load sink for for oversupply right so like electric vehicles on their own are not a solution but like electric vehicles plus certain charging patterns are
2: or electric vehicles with certain charging patterns, and then flexible industrial demand is one example. And that's where you get into another really interesting one in the EU. I know with their green stimulus plan, they prominently featured zero carbon hydrogen. So I let's not hyper focus on hydrogen, though it's very interesting itself, just the concept of producing fuels, which can provide you with seasonal storage, long term storage, like one of the holy grails in the decarbonization path. Um you know, electrofuels is one term that is used for it, but producing different fuels with electricity to sub in to replace different types of fossil fuels that we use today.
1: Right. And the, so the challenge with that one then, and actually this is true, I think, of any industrial. there's a bunch of industrial sources of potential new electricity demand. But again, to treat those as solutions to the oversupply problem, you need them to be consuming electricity when there is oversupply and not consuming too much electricity all the other times. So you inherently run into this like constant balancing act of, so this is true for hydrogen as well as all these other things. Like if you want to run an electrolyzer, your best economics are going to be if you run the electrolyzer all the time. But if you're trying to get the cheapest electricity only, and that's coming when there's overgeneration, that's not going to be all the time, right? And particularly if you want to rely on only renewable electricity. So I wonder how you think that all plays out. Like, are we going to find enough economic use cases for, be it hydrogen production or industrial electricity demand, that can modulate, can turn on and off sufficiently and economically, that we can soak up the extra demand or the extra power when it's there, but not then force a bunch of new production uh, at the times when there's actually tightness.
2: Well, sure. I mean, and you see this, I think. I'm trying to think of my favorite modeling study around this just to get a little more theoretical about it for a minute, because, of course, we're not in the future where we have those sources and we have all that oversupply, et cetera. So I'm thinking about um, the Princeton 2050 net zero study that just came out. Jesse Jenkins and his crew, they've got that maximizing renewables, all renewables scenario. And they say we're using industrial fuel production flexibility so flexibility and zero carbon fuel production and then also direct air capture and sure direct air capture and fuel production you're losing efficiencies you're using these things but if we want to go to this future we need these flexible resources and we see that there is a the potential to do that and to do that without sacrificing reliability now going to 100 renewables in the future and having this flexibility there's a cost trade-off you already mentioned it we absolutely see it in the modeling. Um, the reality is we need a lot of different things to make our life as easy as possible. So flexible resources, flexible supply sources, we need all the technologies. And we need the hardware and the software, to your point.
1: Let's talk about direct air capture for a minute. It's, it's one we haven't spent a lot of time on uh, on this podcast, I think. And it's it's interesting in on its own, it's also interesting in the context of this conversation around um, what to do with excess renewables. What role might direct air capture play?
2: I mean, if you think about these resources where essentially you invest invest in the wind and solar, you invest in the renewable capacity, and then the actual kilowatt hours you're producing are effectively free, now you've got this source of essentially free electricity that can help you to bring down the cost of decarbonizing different parts of the system. And one of the things we talk about in the paper is, um, as much as I'm an engineer and I think tech is super cool in the context of decarbonization, I care about what I'm using it to offset. So... If you think about countries like New Zealand, the U.S., anywhere in Europe, anywhere in the world, there are certain parts of the economy that are very, very hard to abate. Not even just like one vary, like many varies, we haven't figured it out, we need new tech, etc. And so direct air capture can be a really good option for offsetting those emissions. And so actually pulling that CO2 out of the air. And so if you have free electricity, you could pair up with it, you help yourself in that. And it may actually be cheaper than any other technology option that we have for those particular applications.
0: We're gonna pause the show for a minute to talk about the Yale program on financing and deploying clean energy. This is a new online program in 2021 from Yale University. Yale is educating with impact, training working professionals like you to accelerate the deployment of clean energy worldwide. It's estimated that approximately $1 trillion per year is gonna need to be dedicated to deploying and financing clean energy if we wanna stay below two degrees Celsius temperature increase. That's a lot of challenges ahead, but a lot of opportunities as well. Tackling them requires a cross-sectoral approach in an interdisciplinary lens, understanding what's happening across the spectrum. It also requires an informed workforce and powerful knowledge networks. That's why Yale University drew on its deep expertise to offer a unique program, marrying academic rigor with practical skills for working pros in all parts of clean energy. The program builds a common language across disciplines to better understand the interplay of policy, finance, technology, and socioeconomic factors that support the growth of this sector. To connect with Yale expertise right from your laptop, grow your professional network, and deepen your impact, visit the link in the show notes and apply before March 14th, 2021. Don't pass up this opportunity. Okay, so Category 1, Load Sinks, um...
1: You know, find a way to to generate more demand for electricity to use this overproduction, and and use that to solve some other climate change problems. So, electrify vehicles, electrify industrial processes, uh, produce green hydrogen, produce electrofuels, or remove carbon from the atmosphere. Those are all things we've talked about. Um, let's talk about the the main alternative to that, which is transmission build out. How big a difference does that make in terms of mitigating overproduction? Um, And then we should obviously talk about like the barriers to doing that.
2: Yeah, I mean, the reality is, so you mentioned it with solar, like when you have seasonal changes and seasonal shortages, like we don't put electricity, at least not right now, you know, on ships and move it around the world. So these are pretty local pictures we're looking at. So with the transmission grid, you know, we're looking at in North America, okay, how do we build out to pull over generation from California to other states? The reality is over the course of the year, transmission only gets you so far. Um, you still will struggle if you have, you know, 100% renewables for your power generation mix, et cetera. Like you're still going to have these ebbs and flows um, that don't aren't exactly user-friendly in terms of demand as we see it today. And even if we introduce a bunch of demand response, there's still going to be gaps. There's still going to be um, different times of the year where, you know, the wind goes away for a couple of weeks and then comes back. And, and what do you do? So what is interesting about this is going back to our earlier conversation is like transmission can help, certainly. It can pull over generation out of certain areas and put it into areas where you don't have enough electricity during certain times of the year that happen to match up in a good way. But you still want to be looking at other applications. And there's still the opportunity when we look at, OK, we don't just need to decarbonize power. We need to decarbonize industry as well to get to net zero. How can this actually over generation intentionally help us to decarbonize those other sectors?
1: Okay, so we know there's a bunch of options available out there. It's one thing for them to exist, particularly in theory and in some future state, and it's another thing to actually make them happen. And you know, you look at things um, through your Columbia lens um, from a policy perspective, at least in part. So, you know, policymakers historically, I think, have focused on getting more renewables built, predominantly, which I think was the right thing to do. It's how we drove the cost curve down, but this obviously requires some reorientation, presumably. So in your mind, how, how should policymakers or decision makers, regulators, whoever they might be, be thinking about how do I foster the solutions to overproduction so that it be, truly becomes a feature and not a bug?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And the interesting thing is this, is that a feature looks different. Um, to different communities. And that's one of the questions that policymakers have to ask themselves. So let me explain that. And I'll go back to the New Zealand example, just because it's a a particularly interesting one. You've got a bunch of stranded hydropower. You've got a bunch of different choices that you can make. And policymakers are facing the decision of, you know, we couch them in the paper in three different buckets, which are around, do they want to maximize climate value? So get as much carbon out of the system as possible. Do they want to maximize economic value? And there's even a nuance in that. Is it local economic value? Is it around the entire country. And that brings us to community value. And community value isn't just jobs and money. It's also local health effects, et cetera. And so we can pick into each one of those if you want. Um, But that's the kind of, those are the three buckets really that policymakers have to decide and, and balance between. And the balance, you know, it might be just one of those buckets or it might be some kind of mix of the three. And that is a decision that, you know, that community and that country needs to make.
1: I like, um, I like thinking about this in the context of this New Zealand example because it is—it's such a like a binary thing that they're dealing with. In contrast to you know California and the Midwest and Europe, like this is—we've just been slowly but surely, maybe not that slowly but surely uh, over time, building more and more renewables, and you can kind of see the steady incremental progress of like more and more curtailment and more and more periods of zero or negative wholesale pricing and so on and so forth. Whereas in New Zealand, single aluminum smelter shuts down twenty twelve 12% of the entire electricity load of the country yeah. disappears <laughs> overnight. So they have to like yeah. make this decision fast. So how do you think, what would it look like for New Zealand to make a decision based on any one of those three factors that you described, climate value, economic value, and community value?
2: So... Let's think about this out loud for a minute. So, okay, you got some options. We talked about them. You could build out the transmission grid. So right now the system is not designed to move that electricity from the hydro plant into the rest of the country because it was being used locally. So you didn't need to move it all over places. So if they want to move it to the rest of the country, okay, maybe they invest in transmission. Um, So moving that electricity from their corner of the South Island up into other places. They could use it to produce green products. They could produce those locally or in the rest of the country. They could use it for CO2 removal. There's lots of different things. So let's talk through the trade-offs because everything has (laughs) trade-offs. So it's a matter of deciding which trade-offs you can live with and you want to live with. So Highest climate value. So going back to maximizing the climate value, this one needs significant math. So figuring out what that electricity is going to be used for and how much carbon removal you're actually going to get for each of the applications you could apply it for. So in New Zealand, they have a huge dairy industry. They spend a ton of electricity drying out milk to produce milk powder, which is then exported uh, predominantly into Asia, but you know into different countries in the world those cows don't care uh, when you have electricity. They are producing milk when they're producing milk and you can't store it for a long time. This is like inflexible load. There's a tiny bit of flexibility, but it's pretty inflexible. So, okay, is that actually, it needs a ton of electricity. Is that actually one of the biggest bang for the buck kind of applications? Or is it actually offsetting heating and housing? You need to do the math on it. New Zealand needs to do the math on it to see which one would have the highest climate value if they're trying to maximize this.
1: This, by the way, this is something I'd love to see somebody do. So, there's the thing industrial electricity demand is not is so far from monolithic right like who knew that in new zealand a ton of electricity is being used to dry milk there's so many different examples of that and every individual example of that has a different profile when it comes to how flexible that load can be how important the cost of electricity is to the cost of the overall process, when, you know, when electricity could be shifted, when it couldn't be shifted. And like that question feels to me like it's maybe the most important one for any given one of these regions because it's going to tell you what's going to be the easiest, lowest hanging fruit for becoming a load sink or being a flexible resource. So what I want to see, and this is a call to our audience, most of the folks in our audience are probably already familiar with one of these greenhouse gas abatement cost curves. McKinsey did the original sort of famous one, I don't know, more than a decade ago. Apparently Pete Buttigieg worked on it when he was at McKinsey. Um, And there have been a variety since then. I want to see a flexibility uh, load curve. Like I want to see different sectors according to how much electricity consumption they have and how flexible the resource is given the economics and the process that entails. Because would you have known this? Like the milk drying thing before you started looking at New Zealand?
2: <laughs> so New Zealand, really, if you want to walk out and you want to have like a contained system, we talk about Texas being really cool from a power systems perspective. No, go look at New Zealand because they have massive reports where they have... because. It's a pretty small country. They can actually count each of the facilities and look at things like this. And so, no, if I hadn't studied in New Zealand, AI would not have known that that much dried milk came from that country, <laughs> and I wouldn't known about cows. But this is something really important where you look at all these different processes and even in an individual facility. So I used to work in industry. I made cereal right out of undergrad, and even within my own facility, we had a five-story-tall toaster. That took a while to heat up. You weren't going to turn that down. But then I had a corkscrew that actually was producing Cheerios on the other side that I could turn off for an hour, turn back on, and it was probably going to be fine. And if I was paid well, I was going to do it. But the final point I make about New Zealand is that because they have so much renewables and so much hydro, when they hit dry years, so when those reservoirs aren't as full as they want them to be, they have had some um, impressive demand response exercises with industrial users that we can learn a lot from. We can learn a lot about what those individual facilities can come from, but I agree with you. We don't have enough data in a lot of other places in the world and that's a huge valuable resource.
1: So what you're saying is I need to make a trip to New Zealand yes. just to like understand <laughs> load patterns for electricity?
2: For so many that's reasons you need to yeah. go to New Zealand including that. It's it's completely for the load patterns. Right. Yep.
1: <laughs> um all right. What should New Zealand do if they're thinking about it from an economic value or community value lens?
2: Now, so I'll go through these real quick. Like from an economic value lens, you know, again, this depends on if you're talking about economic value to the community, which we largely cap under community value, or you're talking about the whole country. So if you produce products that can be sold, this can bring in tax revenue and improve trade balances. So again, do the math, see where the benefit is there. Now, on a community value perspective, this one cuts both ways in this case. So when that aluminum smelter, when T.Y. Point closes down, it's leaving a lot of jobs to just disappear as well. I think it's something like 1,600 jobs, which is bad for the local economy. I mean, it's it's devastating to the local economy. So if we go with the value that might be the highest around a climate perspective, build that transmission line, it's not good for local jobs and local revenues. But actually, the local health effects from having decreased air pollution, etc., all these health effects that come from actually having that industrial facility there also disappear. So it it cuts both. It cuts both ways. It's trade offs, and again, you got. We have to do the math and understand what those trade offs are and make informed decisions. In my opinion.
1: All right. So let's you know talk about how this all might play out. Then it's it's nice to to think about this from a high level theoretical perspective and to think about the trade offs that decision makers have to make. Um, but I suspect in this instance, as in most, um, the reality will be a lot messier. And indeed, we are already seeing all this curtailment in some locations, and it's not like we've solved the problem immediately. So I'm curious how you think it plays out. Does it get to the point where, you know, do we have to start to hit these these moments of saturation where there is a lot of curtailment, there is a lot of negative pricing, starts to become a challenge, and policymakers do something about it as a result? Or is it that, you know, enterprising power to gas suppliers or enterprising direct air capture suppliers will get out ahead of this, look at where the queue is of new renewables that is going to get built, and site their facilities accordingly so that this actually never, like in the future, overproduction is like a theoretical question, not a practical one.
2: I mean, we're going to see something, as you said, messy. It's not going to be straightforward, and it's going to be slightly different in different places. So we're going to see, you know, we don't have this holistic global or even country level, you know, uh, committed binding policy that makes us decarbonize. So we see kind of starts and stops in different regions that, you know, makes a lot of different stuff happen in a very messy and inefficient way. But, you know, overall, the hope is that that does progress us to zero carbon. So in places like California, um, you know, continuing to build solar wouldn't be surprised. And over time, as there is more and more and more value being left on the table, There is an opportunity there for companies to step in, for the government to step in in ways and to take advantage of that. And so that's creating a place that could become a testbed. I, though, am very interested in seeing what state-owned enterprises do. So when you've got like governments and commercial opportunities married up, and they could actually make conscious choices to move faster on these things, that's where I get really excited and I'm I'm intrigued. Like, what will happen there?
1: Right. Totally. So I think this is going to be a really interesting... Topic to keep talking about over time because I personally am not clear on yeah how the sequencing will work here. Like I feel like there there has been a view historically that overgeneration and market saturation could be like the death blow to renewables at some level of penetration. I think we've we're past that now. It seems unlikely to me that that's going to be true because there are as we've been describing so many different pathways to utilize that energy better. Um, for something else. But I do think there's a sequencing question. I don't know exactly how that plays out when these load sinks show up relative to when the overproduction arrives and how policymakers incentivize various things. Like you can introduce a production tax credit get, that pays out whether or not your power is curtailed and that creates a weird skewed dynamic, right? Um, so it feels to me like, you know, at the high level, this is not, it may be a feature, not a bug, but you might see a little bunch of little pests or some some version of mites <laughs> yeah. in the meantime.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we uh, you could certainly say that all this curtailment in California and in other places, those are all little bugs. Like we don't want to be leaving that on the on the table. And right now the bugs aren't big enough that we're calling the exterminator, which is a terrible analogy for That's what this bad. is, but I'm going to go it. with I'll it. will take it. it, it's okay.
1: <laughs> it's as good as anything I was going to come up but
2: with. once it becomes a big enough bug and we pay attention to it, and we say, wait, I can turn this into something valuable. I mean, that's where we are going to start seeing exciting things, which is why in the paper we talk about New Zealand, 12% suddenly there. And it's firm and dispatchable, amazing. And California, that's a lot of that's a lot of watt hours to leave on a table and to not use for something else. So I can't help but believe that some entrepreneurial, very, you know, creative thinking person will look at it and immediately see the value and how they can use it for their application. And as we start to see these watt hours appearing free on the table, ready for the taking, like we will see in starts and stops and in a messy way, people starting to take advantage, companies and governments.
1: Melissa, thanks so much for coming back.
2: Thanks for having me, Shale. It's always fun talking through these things with you.
1: Likewise. Melissa Lott is a senior research scholar at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. You can find links to the stories and research we talked about today in the show notes. Check them out. Uh, including the the great article that Melissa wrote along with Julio Friedman that sparked this conversation. The Interchange is produced by PostScript Audio in partnership with Greentech Media. The senior producer is Daniel Waldorf. Stephen Lacey is our executive producer. If you want more reporting on the energy transition while you're waiting for the next episode, go over to greentechmedia.com and read what the team of journalists and analysts are covering over there. And don't forget, uh, tell us what you thought of the conversation today. Tweet at us at, at interchange Show or send us an email at postscript audio at gmail.com and send us topics you want us to talk about next is this too wonky for you is it not wonky enough we're always trying to find the right balance there uh, and if you like the show please do go over to apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating and a review share it with a friend on social media tell everyone you know about it shout it from the rooftops uh, whatever you could do is helpful and that's our show i'm shale khan this is the interchange from green tech media